Uh, let's go ahead and get started here. Uh, welcome. Uh, we're going to be talking about a step-by-step uh, -step process through an Old Testament narrative text, uh, 2 Samuel 9 and 10. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, we'll uh, read that in just a second and think through how we can uh, get it right, especially how we can get it right in reference to the gospel. And that's uh, one of the reasons I wanted to do this workshop was to think together, really, about uh, preaching Christ from the Old Testament and specifically preaching Christ from Old Testament narrative, which can be challenging, right? So let's uh, pray and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for the word that comes to us in various uh, ways, in a, in, a, in a variety of uh, genres. And we need your help to read narrative passages like this and understand what the author is intending to communicate and how we should take that and then translate that into our first uh, 21st century context. So we pray for wisdom as we talk about this together. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, let me just, uh, I mentioned this in my workshop yesterday and there were some questions about it so I thought I'd follow up with a little bit of the way I think about the um, process of preaching um, in terms of some really basic questions. I think when you see this hopefully it'll make, make sense. But uh, you basically have a who writing to a who. <laughs> Sounds like a Dr. Su Dr. Seuss book, right? Um, so this would be this would be the author, and these would be the recipients. So typically, the recipients have some kind of why. This would be a need, a problem, questions, situation that is giving rise to the what of the text. So this would be like, this would be like the occasion. Okay, so you got a group of people that uh, the author is writing to, that's the target audience, and there's some situation, need, problem, question that occasions the writing of that text or that book. And um, this right here informs the why of the specific text. This would be the objective that the author has, right? So an author writing to recipients, and there's some reason why he's writing to them, something that occasions that writing. And so here we have the what of the text targeted in a specific way to this group of people. And the, the how of the text, the, the outline or the organization or the structure of the text is the way the author organizes what he's going to say in order to accomplish this objective in light of the occasion or situation. Uh, Questions, comments on that? 
I think this, I think for this workshop, I'll just kind of like stop periodically instead of like going through everything and then saying, do you have questions? We'll just kind of make it more interactive. So um, any thoughts on that? Questions? So for uh, exegesis, so this, so this would be like the original, how it, how it worked originally. When it comes to exegesis, typically I will start with the how, which is the structure of the text. And if you understand the structure and look carefully at the structure of the text, usually you can come to a pretty good sense of the what, what the author is saying or what the author is emphasizing by means of the structure. And then the last part of this would be the why is he's saying this in this way. Right. When it comes to um, preaching, I'm going to start with the what first, typically. Why? <laughs> why? Um, why would I start with the what of the text? Okay, context is important. Yeah, I mean, as a preacher, really, my primary responsibility is to say what the text says, right? So I don't have a lot of wiggle room there in terms of being able to come up with something new. So I'm pretty much just taking the what and carrying that through, but that becomes sort of the, the, the governor when it comes to my preaching. And then pastorally, I start thinking about the why of this sermon. So... Here's what the word says, but now, now it's almost like here's me as the preacher, and here are my here, here's here's my target audience. Um, why do I want to say this to this group of people? And I think the more similarity you have between the original audience and the contemporary audience, the more you can just borrow the why. Does that make sense? If you're target audience has a different situation historically, culturally, whatever, um, then that why might be adjusted to some extent, but I would argue that it would need to be still in line with the original purpose. Like you want to cut with the grain, not against the grain. At that point, then I'm in a position to think about how I'm going to structure the sermon in order to say this, in order to accomplish this. Okay. Any uh, thoughts, comments, questions on sort of that that sequence? I'm just I'm just telling you how I tend to think as I'm working from text to sermon. Boiling it down to some of these um, just basic but essential. Uh, questions. And that gives me, um, that gives me some focus when it comes to, um, you know, taking a text like 2 Samuel 9 and 10, and I kind of know what I'm uh, after. And I can take a lot of stuff and just sort of distill it down to the essence, because in the end, this is what I want to capture. And partly, like if I were doing in an academic paper, I might 
think about this process differently. But really, there's a, there's a mirror, isn't there, between this and what I'm doing. Because here I am as the preacher, preaching to a particular group of people. I have a message, I have an objective, and I have an outline or structure. So as much as possible, I'm trying to represent the text in a 21st century context. And my default would be to try to say what the text says in the way the text says it for the purpose or objective of the text. Now, I know there are reasons why you might adjust or kind of tweak things, but that's, that's sort of my basic approach. Okay. Any uh, questions or thoughts on that? All right. So what I'd like to do is just kind of talk through the, the uh, steps of uh, preparation. And let's just go ahead and get these on the, the board here. You've got the step of preparation. And that's what we were talking about even in the panel discussion, truth through personality, right? It's the development of the person. It's the development of the preacher. It's the ethos. And um, not going to spend a lot of time here. This is always going on, right? So there's a sense in which the sermon is always being prepared because you are being prepared as a preacher. Uh, the second step is selection, right? Selecting the text. And if you were in the workshop yesterday, we talked about planning out your preaching calendar and making this a little bit easier on a weekly basis. But obviously you're gonna have to choose, in this case, a narrative, choose a story. Then there's uh, orientation. Bless you. Uh, which is surveying the context. So this would be the macroscopic perspective, like big picture perspective. So I got my text, but actually the place where I begin typically is not the text itself, but the broader context. Step four, see on page two there, is investigation. And this is the more the microscopic context, if you will, though it includes some larger contextual things. But, but looking at the text directly uh, in more detail. Step five uh, is on page uh, four. And this is limitation. Focusing the study. So what ends up happening, and maybe you've experienced this, is once you've done the uh, you know, orientation, the investigation, you have a lot of material, right? What are you going to do with all of that material? You have to filter it down. You have to boil it down to its essence. So this is where you begin to get clarity on things like the how and the what and the why. So that you can begin to make the transition to the sermon itself, which is step six, and that is the organization. So all of this to bring us to the what and the why and the how. Make sure that we've got those. And now we begin to sort of flip it and think about how we're going to take this across to our uh, contemporary audience. And then step um, seven is on page seven, and it's uh, proclamation. 
Okay. Any uh, thoughts or questions on that, uh, the process? Everybody has their own way of thinking about this and representing it. So I've got seven steps. I felt like that was a good biblical number, right? Number of perfection. Seven steps. Perfect. Yes. Thank you. Okay. So what I'd like to do uh, in the time that we have is just to try to walk through an example, 2 Samuel 9 and 10, and uh, work through these steps, have some interaction together. This is related to what I mentioned in yesterday's sermon, and that is, I think when Paul says to preach the word, in the context, he has the gospel in view in particular, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when Paul says to preach the word, he has the totality of scripture in mind, both Old Testament and whatever was available at the time, the apostolic teaching, any of the gospels that might've been circulating, Right, So the totality of Scripture, preaching the Word, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ from all of Scripture. And as we heard about just a few minutes ago, we want to make sure we get it right. We want to make sure we cut it straight. And that's easier said than done, especially in some genres like this, especially when we're in the Old Testament. So let's uh, think together through a possible way of doing this faithfully in a focused and faithful way. So would somebody read uh, for us 2 Samuel 9, and then I'll have somebody else read 2 Samuel 10. Let's just get the, the story in view, and then uh, that way it won't be, um, I'll be able to reference it, and you'll know what we're talking about. All right, so you guys ready to preach that text? <laughs> Are you ready to preach Christ from that text? <laughs> So this was, this was the assignment given to me. Uh, I was asked to preach on 2 Samuel 9 and 10 at our church because we were working through uh, 1 and 2 Samuel. So when it comes to step two, sometimes the story is given to you. Sometimes the text is given to you. Um, if it weren't, I would probably try to choose a narrative text based on plot, right? Like it has... It has uh, setting and conflict and crisis climax and resolution outcome, right? Um, obviously, a lot of this would take place probably in the context of a series, and you're going to do your planning up front, and so these units are going to be laid out ahead of time. But for me, this is fresh. Like, this is like from last last uh, month. And I was given this text, and here's here's where I started. Step three. With what? Surveying the context. Now, I put there Grant Osborne hermeneutical spiral because I think sometimes we will dive immediately into the text. But as he argues, the first stage in serious Bible study is to consider the larger context in which a passage is found. Unless we can grasp the whole before attempting to dissect the parts, interpretation is doomed from the start. Statements simply have no meaning apart from their context. Now, if you were doing an expository book series to First and Second Samuel, a lot of this work would be done on the front end at the beginning, right? But let's say, like me, you were given this as an assignment, and so now one of the first things I want to do is try to get my arms around First and Second Samuel. Like, what's going on here? I put some things here, you know, author, recipient, date, purpose, themes, so on. Like, what are what's the what's sort of the big overarching emphasis of 1st and 2nd Samuel. Where am I when I come to 2nd Samuel 9 and 10? 
One of the other things that I wanna do, if I haven't done this previously, is to try to understand the narrative genre because I realize I'm entering into a particular kind of literature and I wanna understand how narrative works. Genre is important because it's like the rules of the game. Just like you know, soccer, you don't play soccer the same way you play you know, baseball, right? What are the rules that govern narrative? So one of the things I've given you in the back, if you turn to page uh, 26, is just a list of resources for preaching narrative, if you're interested. Some of these resources deal with interpretation. Uh, some of them deal with preaching in particular. Uh, one that I would draw to your attention on page 26 is Dale Ralph Davis, about halfway down. The Word Became Fresh, How to Preach from the Old Testament Narrative Text. Anybody read that book? Okay. Did you like it? He's the king. He's the king. <laughs> He's the man. Yeah. It's so good. It's short. It's very readable. It's accessible. I read it in one day and just thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, Davis is uh, astute at recognizing the, ir the ironies in narrative, the things that maybe we don't see on the surface, but that are actually quite uh, humorous because of the ironic twists and turns. And then um, at the bottom, you see several books by Sidney Gradanus. Uh, these are a little more uh, technical. If you want to do some heavy lifting and get into this in more detail, Gradanus is a good read. On the back, page 27, Joe Linares uh, did his Doctor of Ministry dissertation at Bob Jones University and the University Press published that under Proclaiming God's Stories, How to Preach Old Testament Historical Narrative. Uh, Stephen Mathewson, just under Linares, is another helpful resource. Uh, the second edition of The Art of Preaching Old Testament Narrative came out in 2021, and I think it's a better edition than the first edition. Um, and then if you drop down to the bottom of page 27, Christopher Wright has a book called how to preach and teach the Old Testament for all it's worth. And he has a couple of chapters in there on preaching narrative, which um, I found very helpful. Okay, so back to uh, page two. So we start with a big picture, uh, understanding narrative genre, surveying the book, first and second Samuel in this case, and now, step four, I begin the investigative process of actually studying the story itself. Part of that might involve confirming the text, which is basically textual criticism. Uh, in this case, I didn't really have to do that. Uh, the next part, if you remember, where did I start with exegesis? I start with the how. So I'm going to start with the structure of the narrative. And um, you can see that if you hold your finger there and turn over to pages 9 through 11. You'll see I have a structural display and narrative analysis of 2 Samuel 9 through 10. I know some people will say, I don't, I don't do this with narrative, I do it with epistle because, you know, there's an argument and you're trying to trace the argument. But many people don't find it as helpful to do narrative analysis like this. I still do. Um, you're not going to see something like this, like you do in Romans, but I still think you can see some of the areas where um, the, the, the narrator will expand on certain details, right? And that shows you that there's some emphasis here because biblical story writers are very economical in the way they tell stories. 
And so when you have something that's stretched out and expanded, that's kind of a, maybe a clue that there's some really significant thoughts there. So basically what I do is I just um, lay it out like you see. You can't tell on this page, but I've got different colors that represent different things. But I'm essentially laying it out visually and then trying to identify the sections within the narrative. Okay, so on page nine there, how many sections do I have in chapter nine? I've got one, uh, so chapter nine, verse one, chapter nine, verses uh, two through four, chapter nine, verses five through eight, uh, nine through 11b, and then 11c through 13. And then we begin chapter 10. Um, can you tell what it was that sort of made those divisions or how I came to those divisions? In other words, I'm, just tr I'm trying to subdivide the narrative into these smaller sections. And then I'm going to go on to sort of summarize each of those sections and what's uh, the emphasis there. <clears throat> Mm -hmm. Yeah, so in this case, you've got these dialogues. Uh, David's investigation and dialogue with Ziba, two through four. David's invitation and dialogue with Mephibosheth, five through eight. Uh, David's invitation and dialogue with Ziba, nine through 11. And then the last part really isn't dialogue, but it kind of serves as the outcome of the story. Mephibosheth enjoys the benefits of David's kindness. Any questions on that, on the narrative analysis or, um, you know, dividing it into subsections. Sometimes I'll just divide the narrative into plot. You know, you got the setting and then you got conflict and then maybe you got crisis climax and then you've got resolution. Sometimes that's the easiest way to just break it up. Maybe you're about to bring this home at the mm -hmm. end here, but these two chapters mm -hmm. seem very, very, very different. Yeah. And maybe you found a common mm -hmm. point and you're going to show us that yeah. here in a few minutes. Um, would you, though, at Hopefully. the beginning when you're doing the text criticism, go back to the church, if it's a church you're familiar mm -hmm. with, regular with, and you know you're preaching, and say, hey, mm -hmm. I, I'm thinking that maybe I should just preach chapter 9, yeah. and maybe we push this back a week, mm -hmm. and the next week we do chapter 10 and so forth. Is that something you would feel strong doing, or would you mm -hmm. say, no, this is what they gave me, mm -hmm. figure out a way? That's a good question. I think I, uh, if I felt like there really wasn't any unity between the chapters, um, I might reach out and just say, hey, what do you think if I just do this? Or maybe reference chapter 10, but really focus on chapter 9 kind of thing. You know, in some cases, the church is looking for just, hey, we just want to work through the material as opposed to we want to have a unified sermon that brings everything together in a nice, neat package. I felt that way initially, but I did actually find the connector that helped me realize, okay, I can do nine and 10 together. Although if you look at the sermon that I've got in the back, I, uh, chapter 10 is almost a little bit of a footnote and chapter nine becomes the focus. Some of that was just time, but I think chapter nine is the highlight. Chapter 10 emphasizes something on the other side that is, that is important, but maybe wasn't the focus of the message. Good question. Anything else on the narrative uh, analysis or the structural? Okay. So back to uh, page two. Um, displaying the narrative structurally, that's the how. 
And then I'm observing the text now that I've got it laid out in order to identify the what and then eventually the why. So like, okay, now that I see how it's structured, what's the point of this story? And at this, at this juncture, I can look at the text, I can observe the text through different lenses, different angles. And some of these are gonna be more fruitful than others. But this is what I try to keep in my repertoire. So it's almost like you take off a lens, you put on a different lens and you look at the text through that lens and then you take off those glasses and you put on another set of glasses and you look at the text from that standpoint. So you'll notice the first one is one that's informed by the fact that this is narrative. This is not an epistle. This is not poetry. This is a narrative. So I look at it through the lens of plot. Now, you um, hopefully, hopefully you didn't pay too much attention to that structural display, but um, let's, let's see if we can do chapter 9 together. Um, What's the setting of the story? What's the uh, conflict? And maybe how does that escalate? Um, what's the crisis climax, which would be the point of greatest tension in the story? You know, if you were there in that situation, you'd be holding your breath, wondering what's going to happen next. And then the resolution is actually what happens. And then sometimes you have, you know, an, an outcome that follows the resolution. So sometimes you have setting or some people call this an occasioning incident that really gets everything going. And then immediately you've got conflict. Conflict escalates to the point of what's going to happen next, resolution, this is what happens next, and then what's the fallout of that. So chapter 9, what would you guys say is the occasioning incident of chapter 9? Okay, where do you see that? Uh, well, sorry, I'd like, I'd like the, great, the greater context. No, just, just uh, chapter 9. Oh, yep, mm -hmm. yep, just chapter 9. How can I show kindness to one of Okay. So how would you distill that or boil that down? What's the thing driving the story? The story of Mephibosheth is there. You know, these events take place with reference to Mephibosheth because... David's relationship with Jonathan. Okay. So, so Dave, they, it's David's question, right? It's David's inquiry that really is the precipitating uh, incident for the rest of the story. David's invest, uh, I, I think I have on the, um, yeah, David's question and his intention. What's the, is there any conflict in the story? If so, what is the conflict in the story? Okay, yeah. So I think it's, it's kind of this, right? Like, is there anyone? And conflict, is there anyone? And what happens? Ah, yes, there is. So in one sense, it seems like the story is resolved, but is there any conflict beyond that initial resolution? David's got a question. Is there anyone remaining from the house of Saul that I can show kindness to? You find a servant, servant named Ziba. Find out, yes, there is. Story's over. 
in the subtext, which is mm. it was customary for kings to just off any any potential uh, rivals, yeah. rival claimants to the <laughs> throne. So that I think that's what people were expecting, mm. and even the readers might have been expecting mm. that. That okay, yeah, he might say he's going to try to show kindness, but we all know what kings do when they start a new dynasty and make sure there's nobody else from the old line. Yeah, so I think, um, especially if you just glance back at chapter 8, just kind of look at chapter 8 in your Bible. What's going on in chapter 8? There's still a tension between David and the house of Saul. Mm -hmm. Son of Saul. Mm -hmm. And what do, you, what do you see in chapter 8 as far as like the um, emphasis? Maybe even just look at the heading in your Bible or... He's wiping people out. It's like, it's like enemy after enemy after enemy. They're all getting mown down by David. And now, chapter 9, verse 1, is there anyone of the house of Saul that I can show kindness to? What are you thinking as a reader? What's, yeah, what is his true intention? Now, he does state that he wants to show kindness to him. But I think in light of the context, in light of the fact that it's the house of Saul, you know, any conflict there is, in terms of the narrative would be how sincere are those intentions and will David actually follow through on this? So I think um, where does the story sort of come to its, uh, to its head in regards to that tension of what David is actually going to do with this remaining descendant from Saul's house? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So where, like in the text, where would you find, like, where would you be like, uh, you know, holding your breath, wondering what's going to happen next? There is someone else. Yes. And then that someone else is summoned to see King David. And, uh, and where are you like, whoo, which, which verse? King David sent, brought him. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, fell on his face, prostrated himself. David said, Mephibosheth, he said, here's your servant. Yeah. Like, off with your head. Yeah. Yeah, and that's when we're like, okay, right? Like, that's, that's where we get the, the resolution of the story. Now, the reason I think plot analysis is so important, this isn't like literature class, <laughs> This is preaching. You tell me, why, why do you think it's so important to go through this process and identify these aspects of narrative and then especially kind of zero in on the resolution of the story? And what is, what is the resolution of the story? <coughs> yeah, he, show, he does show kindness, right? Uh, and it's kind of over-the-top kindness. Mm -hmm. But I see it mentioned here several mm -hmm. times. Is anything uh, sufficient about the fact that he was lame? Mm. Yes, I think so. Uh, we'll, we'll come to that hopefully. But yeah, you, you've got it. That would be that would be part of just sort of the second part of on page two, observing through the lens of story and thinking through things like repetition and why does the narrator keep saying this? And in fact, why does he end that way? It's the strangest ending, isn't it? After 
everything takes place. And then the last thing is, and he was lame in his feet. It's like, like, why would you end that way? Unless that was significant. Mm. Reminds me of what mm. God does for us. Mm. We're totally lame. Mm-hmm. And yet because of inexplicable love for mm. us, he does the inexplicable. Yeah. Yeah, it's really a beautiful, beautiful portrait, beautiful analogy here. That is a question I was going to ask you. When you, when you read your passages, do you try to look and see, you know, what can I get out of it? How can I, how can I apply what you're reading <clears throat> to my life or even to life today? Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm, I am concerned about that, but I do want to make sure I go through this process, right, before I get to that. Uh, because there may be things in the narrative where it's like, oh, that reminds me of whatever, or um, that's a picture of you know salvation, and it may be that that's something that I can tap into, but I first want to sort of hold back uh, that impulse to go immediately to application and make sure I'm understanding in the context of First and Second Samuel what's the point of this story, like why is it here. So, what would you say is the resolution of the story in terms of its um, uh, uh, significance? Okay, so we see David's uh, kindness, his compassion. Seems like it's connected to the covenant with Jonathan initially. Okay. So we see uh, covenant, uh, covenant loyalty, right? And that that word um, hesed is uh, the word translated kindness. There, uh, God's covenant, covenant loyalty. Um, and then what's the what's the outcome? Like you know, so David does uh, follow through on his intention, and then what happens in uh, eleven? C through 13. Yeah. So you see, you see the enjoyment, right, of those blessings. So covenant loyalty, um, promises of blessing, and then the enjoyment of that um, by Mephibosheth. Okay, now chapter 10. That one's a little bit more of a scratch-your-head kind of a chapter. What would you say is the um, occasioning incident? Running out of space here. Yeah. King of the Ammonites dies. Um, Conflict? That was a little easier, right? What's the conflict? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And when you look at verse two, what would be the what would, what is the connection? And this is what I finally realized. What what is the connection between chapter nine and chapter ten? Yeah, it's like a repeat performance, right? But in this case, it's not kindness to an insider. It's not a kindness to someone of the house of Saul or house of Jonathan. It's loyalty to who? To, to an outsider, right? It's loyalty to um, um, uh, Hanan's, uh, yeah, is it Hanan? Yeah. Okay, so you've got this 
intention, again, to show kindness to an outsider, but the kindness is misconstrued as an attempt to come in and destroy. And so basically the rest of the story, three through the end, is the conflict, right? David's intentions are questioned by the Ammonite leaders. Um, They humiliate his emissaries, his messengers. And then what happens? What's, so that's, that's the conflict. And so they gather armies to defeat David. And where is sort of the crisis climax, sort of the pinnacle point in the story where you're um, holding your breath, wondering what's going to happen next? Yeah, so probably like end of verse 12, right? After Joab's speech, um, Verse 13 says, Joab and his troops advanced to fight against the Arameans. And what was the outcome or the resolution? Yeah, Ammonites, uh, the Ammonites saw that the Arameans had fled and they too fled. And um, David's enemies regroup. And then David uh, conquers his enemies, chapter um, 10, verses 17 to 18. And then what would be the outcome of that in the last verse, verse 19? Yeah. So when all the kings who were Hadadezer's subjects saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel, became their subjects. After this, the Arameans were afraid to ever help the Ammonites again. All right, so that was just that was just plot analysis, right? And I always find that with narrative to be so fruitful. Like that just really helps me to kind of get clarity on w- what's going on in the story and why those stories are there. Ultimately, remember what I'm trying to get to is is this: the how, the what, and the why. So I did the narrative structural analysis, and I did some of this, um, but I'm still asking the question, why is this uh, series of chapters there? Okay. What is the point, do you think, of these two chapters, and why do you think they're in First and Second Samuel? And I know, you know, this is hard because you guys are just kind of like thinking through this for the first time. Okay. And then, yeah, two different outcomes depending mm. on how the each recipient who he was trying to deal mm. with reacted to his okay. uh, gesture of kindness. Yeah. So once you kind of see that connection, then you realize, that, okay, here's an intention to show kindness, and he follows through um, because there is in Mephibosheth a humble response, right, to David's intention. But in chapter 10, you, you've got this sort of rejection of kindness, covenant loyalty. And then you see sort of the consequences and the fallout of that. So it's like uh, intention to show kindness, reception of kindness, the blessings enjoyed. And then you've got intention to show kindness, rejection of kindness, and then the destruction and the judgment that follows, right? And that was kind of like, once I saw that, I was like, oh, okay, Whew, I, think I, could do, I think I could do this, right? I see the, the, the pattern here. So if you turn to page 11, Here's, here's what I'm trying to come to at the end of the exegesis um, section, the, the how and the what and the why. So you see the, the path there, that's the how, and I'm basically just kind of 
copy pasting what I've got in the narrative analysis chart up above. And then I've got the point and the purpose. So what I'd like to do is just read through this and then get your feedback. You think, you think I'm on, you think I cut it straight or do you think I'm off? Okay. Because I think this is the kind of thing that we need to do more in collaboration with each other um, so that we get feedback and, um, and we're pressed to, to think carefully about narrative texts and uh, whether or not we're, we're preaching the word. So I divided into two sections because I think, you know, there's the historical plane, like what's happening with reference to David on the surface, but then there's also, as we back up, the theological or the Christological point. And that's kind of driven by my understanding of, you know, 2 Timothy 4.2 and, you know, Luke 24 and all of these kinds of passages. So historically, David is a covenant-keeping king intent on showing kindness to his enemies. Those who humble themselves before him enjoy great blessing, but those who reject his kindness will be conquered. Any, um, any thoughts on that? Anything that's missing or anything that's off? I think just in addition to that, also a covenant-keeping mm-hmm. God mm-hmm. because he had made promises to David and had him anointed mm-hmm. and in the establishment of his kingdom you can see God's faithfulness coming through as well. Yes, e- excellent. So we are moving from history to theology, right? We're moving from, you know, what's taking place historically to the theological significance which is kind of the next uh, section there. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, that one's a little that one's a little harder because there isn't anything specified. So it's kind of reading between the lines. But it seems like there was right, right, that there was some kind of kindness that he showed to David that is being reciprocated in this particular instance. Was there a formal covenant? Maybe, but we don't know. Um, yeah, great question. Hmm? See, I think Harvey wants to push back on the enemies part. Okay. Um, just because in eight, I mean, he completely he's wiping them out, and then it's not based on Saul that he's being nice to. I'm sure that's it's yeah. based on his loyalty to God and his friend. Yeah. And then even in the next one, he's talking about the loyalty that the father showed. Uh-huh. I don't know if in context he's talking about yeah. enemies as much as it is. That's so. So that's a really great point, and that's the kind of like feedback that you need. That's the kind of like question you need to be like, okay, you know, do I have justification for including that, or am I, you know, am I stressing something or emphasizing something that's not really there? And I guess in response, I would just say I think one of the reasons that uh, it's highlighted that David that that Mephibosheth was lame has significance here, as well as the fact that he is referred to as the son of Saul and the son of Jonathan. Now, the Jonathan piece is, you know, David's favorable toward Jonathan, and that kind of maybe throws us off a little bit. But I think the fact that David is wanting to show uh, kindness to the house of Saul in light of the subtext and the context is pretty significant. Um, He is introduced that way to David but then there's also the lame piece, which I didn't get until recently. Um, if you go back to chapter five, 
um, when David invades Jerusalem and the Jebusites are there. And you could look at this if you want. Um, they basically taunt David and say, David, even, even our lame and blind could stop you from coming in here. So David does. He conquers Jerusalem. And it says, does anybody have that open? Um, yes. Where's the proverb? Read the section where it says it became a proverb that day. It's probably, you know, verse five or six-ish. Verse eight. Yeah. But, but isn't there a follow-up? Um, yeah. Let me, let me see here. Chapter 5. David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul through the water tunnel. Therefore they say, proverbially, the blind or the lame shall not come into the house. So did David hate blind and lame people? Is that what it's saying? No. But it's, a, it's proverbial in light of the sarcastic taunting of the Jebusites, his enemies. So I think with that immediate context, I mean, that's just a few chapters before, I think with that immediate context in view, why does the author stress that Mephibosheth is lame several times? And why does he end with that? And why is it significant that it keeps saying Mephibosheth is living in Jerusalem? And at the king's table in Jerusalem? Oh, and don't forget, he's lame. And he's the son of Saul, right? Son of Jonathan. I, so I, I would argue from those factors that actually that is an emphasis in the passage um, that also is an emphasis in chapter 9 as well. Does that, does that make sense? Great question. Uh, so historically and, and Christologically, this is page 11, the Davidic king is a recipient of God's kindness or covenant loyalty. And because of him, God intends to bless any of his enemies from the house of Adam who will humble themselves before him in contrast to those who reject his goodwill expressed through his messengers. Now that's, you know, that's where it gets a little bit more like, hmm, you know, we're, like, what do you think of that statement? So I've just kind of backed up, right? And I've, I'm, I'm tapping into the larger story of Scripture. Though my understanding would be this story is part of a story, which is part of a story, which is part of the story. And I'm trying to understand this story in light of this, the story. So this has pretty deep roots, right? This, this general theme that runs throughout the Bible from beginning to end. And, and you, know, you could include that in your theological statement if you want to. Any other um, thoughts, comments, or pushback on the... Um, Mm-hmm. Um, and 
that's definitely on display in these two chapters. Mm -hmm. Because one of the questions in Samuel, right, is who, who's going to be king in Israel, right? You have the inauguration of the kingship. Um, God is ultimately king over Israel, but the people want a king, which isn't necessarily a problem in light of passages in Genesis and Deuteronomy 17, but the problem is their timing for asking and their motive for asking. Um, so we get Saul, and he's a disaster. Uh, and then we get David, and what, what do we make of David? <laughs> yeah, so he's kind of a mixed bag. Um, so he's probably not the fulfillment of the expectation that of Abraham there would come, you know, kings, and through that king there would come great blessing. But just a few chapters earlier, 2 Samuel 7, what do we read about? The Davidic covenant. Yeah. Ultimately through, but it is going to be through David, right? And because of God's covenant to David, that God does bring that blessing of Abraham to, to the nations. But in order for people to enjoy that blessing, they're going to have to do what? Humble themselves and submit to the true king. If they don't, what's going to be their experience? <clears throat> that to me sounds a lot like Psalm 2, doesn't it? Like when I read these stories, I thought, this is Psalm 2. This is like a case study in Psalm 2. The raging nations and God laughs and says to them, I've already installed my king. And so therefore, Psalm ends, be wise, O kings of the earth, rulers, submit, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, right? And how does the Psalm end? Yeah, that sounds like chapter nine, doesn't it? The rest of the Psalm sounds like chapter 10. So I think, you know, in seeing some of those themes and connecting it to larger storyline, I feel comfortable. Like, personally, I feel comfortable seeing that as, you know, you, you've got the first Samuel, um, Davidic historical situation going on, but I think you also have in the larger story of scripture, uh, this, this message that I can preach as well and do what I think Paul is encouraging Timothy to do, and that is to preach the word, the gospel, from all of Scripture, including the Old Testament. But there's a way to do it, and there's a way not to do it, right? Uh, I would prefer to go that route versus like just reading through the passage and saying, oh, you know, um, uh, this reminds me of Jesus, right? This makes me think of Jesus, or this, this makes me think of the cross. Um, you kind of see what I you kind of see what I did. I started historically and then backed out once I understood what the theological message was. Any, any thoughts on that or comments? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah. Right. That's what you hope. Yes. And I think that's what Jesus was doing on the road to Emmaus, right? It says he opened up the scriptures and interpreted in them, from them, things concerning himself. Like that wasn't eisegesis, that was exegesis. But I think I'm, I'm safer if I move out like this from the text, tap into the broader story of scripture, than 
kind of bringing a, sort of a Christological sort of framework and, and sort of superimposing that onto the story. Covenant-keeping king, right? Yeah. Uh, who both received a covenant and um, is the basis by which God extends kindness to us. So um, you bring up a good question because one of the things that is difficult about preaching narrative in this way is the possibility that every message is going to sound exactly the same, right? So that basically it's like, oh, here's God's kindness to Mephibosheth, or you know, David's kindness to Mephibosheth. Boom, you know. Here's the story of salvation, and we need to trust in Jesus and submit to him and enjoy his blessing. Like you can imagine yourself just saying that over and over again. So how do you how do you address that possibility of just sort of saying the same general things over and over and over again in an attempt to preach the gospel from the Old Testament? Well, in this case, for example, you're you're Right. So, so if I hear you correctly, it's like there's a diamond, and you're looking. The, the the diamond is the gospel, but there are different facets, and you see a different fat. You see a particular facet in this story, and that's what you're really pressing into, so that you don't end up just sort of preaching the diamond every the whole diamond every message. But in this case, we have the covenant loyalty and the covenant kindness of God expressed in Jesus Christ. And that's what I'm highlighting and pressing into for this sermon. And the next section, the next story, maybe highlight something different, a different facet, a different glory of the gospel. Um, the why sometimes is a little more difficult if you're still looking at page 11. Because, um, well, you tell me, why is the why sometimes more difficult to get a handle on? Like, why is this story here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So where do you go or where would you get a sense of maybe the why? Yeah. So you're looking at the details of the text, right? What's emphasized, what's highlighted, and maybe that'll help you kind of work backwards to maybe some sense of why the story's here. Anything else? Sometimes up there is uh, New Testament uh, authors may actually refer back to the story okay. and, and actually tell you and say, you know, Jesus may say, yeah. hey, here's the story, right. here's why it's there. Yeah. So looking at other maybe scripture 
cross-references that might give you help in understanding the purpose and intention? Yeah. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Were you going to say something, Joel? I really like the. Oh, yeah, go ahead. I really like the link back to chapter five. Uh, you know, that this is never going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. It does seem like the, if you're looking at the first and second Samuel, and it's a there's continuity. He asks the question, "Why these chapters of all the events mm. since David's beginning mm-hmm. of his reign? Why are these here?" Yeah. I'm not saying I know the answer, but I yeah. Mm-hmm. Of all the stories that are selected, it's initial acts of his kindness as he came into Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. So what, you know, is that meant to be a foreshadowing mm-hmm. of a greater king, or is it, I'm just, I don't know. Yeah, but, you, but you're on the right track. See, you know, you're looking at the text, right? And are there indicators in the text? And then you're backing up and looking at the broader context maybe even historical cultural context. In other words, what's the background behind First and Second Samuel and understanding the purpose of the book as, a whole, book as a whole will then help you understand why this particular narrative is here. So the why is, is uh, sometimes more challenging, but it's important for preaching and teaching because it kind of gives you the applicational trajectory. Uh, and you're going to tap into that eventually. Just a question. You know, what, mm-hmm. what, what, about, what about the love? Mm. Yes. Yeah. That so that would be in the covenant loyalty part, right? Um, like that, Hesed is a difficult um, Hebrew term to translate because it has sort of elements of covenant and loyalty. It also has elements of love and affection, and I think that's why some translations have loving kindness or, or loving loyalty, even. And so I think that's an important aspect to bring out. It's not just like a duty. Um, yeah. So there, there, there's some affection here, right? Uh, not just David has this promise and he's just kind of sticking to it, but there was an affection behind that um, covenant. And maybe even in the case of um, chapter 10, we don't know. We just don't have enough information there to know what the relationship was there with David and this uh, Ammonite king. Uh, we are just about out of time. Is there anything that you want to talk about or ask me about uh, as we come to a close? I've got everything in here. Um, maybe you can, at some point for your devotions, just kidding, uh, read through <laughs> read through this sermon and just kind of see how I did it. I'm not saying it was perfect. Uh, this is, like I said, pretty fresh. Um, I, I'll show you this just to show you how like seriously, I take this though, the um, preaching Christ from the Old Testament. I, I want to get it right, but I don't want to eisegete, right? I just, I just don't. I, it's just in my blood that I can't do that, right? <laughs> I'm not saying I've never done it. I'm just saying. So I actually, before I preached this, I actually did this to make sure I was thinking about this correctly, <laughs> And I wasn't uh, reading Jesus into the text. Now, I don't intend for you to understand this. This is my messed up mind um, processing this. I'm just showing you that I went through all of this in order to make sure that I was drawing legitimate connections and I wasn't just reading Jesus into the text. So that I felt 
Like I could stand up on Sunday morning as I did and say, thus says the Lord. And I could preach with confidence that this is the word of the Lord and just not, not just my perspective or opinion about it. So hopefully this collaboration uh, pointed out the beauty of that kind of interaction uh, of just sitting down with brothers and sisters over texts of scripture and saying, how do we read this? And working through it, looking at the plot, um, challenging each other, raising questions, objections, and, um, and growing in our ability to do what Paul said in, in 2 Timothy 4. Is that me? My face <laughs> Are you okay? The Are you going to make it? It's, it's low. All right. Any, any last comments on preaching Christ from Old Testament narrative? Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. That was a Thank you for uh, your participation. Uh, every book by Dale Ralph Davis <laughs> yeah. is a master. <laughs> yeah. He is, he is really good. I have one quick one. Yeah. Um, so this, this one wasn't easy, mm. but, I, but in terms of taking it to Christ, I think maybe easier than some other passages yes. in the historical. Yeah, I think you're right. So is this common in with our Reformed brothers to hear, if you don't take it to Christ, mm-hmm. you're failing your people. Yeah. If, if, there's, if, there, if you don't, if you can't make a diagram like this where you, feel like <laughs> you can honestly get there, would you just uh, abstain, <laughs> abstain. From, <laughs> from trying to make the connection at all? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, you know, so there's this impulse that you have yeah. in light of Luke 24 and other passages to go this direction. But I also have to feel comfortable that when I stand up and preach the word that I am handling it rightly. So I would, I would do my best to think through possible connections. The nice thing about church ministry and church context is that hopefully the gospel is the context, not just of your sermon, but it's the context of your worship service. It's the larger context of your ministry as a whole. So that even maybe in some of those, those uh, rare instances or those harder texts, there's still a gospel context to, so that I'm not just moralizing the passage and just, you know, in this case, obviously pointing to David as the stellar example of kindness because he's going to blow it in just, you know, in chapter 11, he's like the poster boy for disloyalty. So obviously the text isn't there to point me to David ultimately, right? But, but I hear you and, um, you know, I just, for me personally, I'm just going to work as hard as I can to make, the, to, see, to draw those legitimate connections. Um, could there be an instance where it wasn't there? Potentially. But my, my gut is that there is some connect. There's, there's some, there's some path to London, right? We, but, but I just, I don't want to jump over the fences to get there. Um. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the word, and thank you for Jesus, uh, for revealing him in all of his splendor in various ways throughout the canon of Scripture. And we want to grow and make progress in our handling of texts like this and uh, make sure that we're preaching the gospel and new covenant ministers um, holding up Jesus before people in ways that are exegetically, hermeneutically responsible. And so we pray to that end and for your glory. Amen.